So we'll begin with the words of the Buddha. I'm so grateful to be with a group of people reflecting on impermanence. As funny as this may sound, this is a great thing. <laughs> I mean, going to Hawaii or doing this or doing that could be really great, but gathering together to reflect on impermanence is not only invigorating or enlivening, but it's enlightening, it's liberating. It really frees us up. And this is, uh, this is our barometer, actually. You know, as we take up the study of impermanence for these eight weeks, you can just see, you know, do you feel depressed or do you feel lighter? And if you're feeling heavy with the whole thing, then it may be that you're thinking about impermanence, which is different than reflecting on the way it is and the changing nature of the way it is. There's two different things. So we could spend eight weeks thinking about how miserable it is that we work so hard to live and then we die. Or, you know, we work so hard in this relationship and then he or she left me. Or any number of ways we experience impermanence. I put so much time into this company and then I got laid off. So we think about those things and it, it's scary and it, we feel in a way betrayed by life. Like that shouldn't happen. It's not fair. But that's, I mean, you can do that. But in terms of the course, we're looking at the moment to moment reality, what we call the present moment. And whether we're observing thoughts or emotions or sensation or sound or sight or smells or tastes, we're interested in the dynamic process nature of all phenomena. And we're noticing, and this is the most important thing, we're noticing the effect it has on the mind. One of the things I will send out in the email and will get up on the website is an article by um, Ajahn Tanisaro, a well-known Western Buddhist monk and a very prolific um, translator and writer. And he's an article that's all about change, it's called. And uh, he talks in this article about how um, often people misunderstand the teachings, the Buddhist teachings on impermanence. And it's not that these teachings are wrong. In, in a relative sense, they're useful. Like he gives some examples. He says, uh, one example is, I'm just reading, insight into change teaches us to embrace our experiences without clinging to them. I mean, that sounds like good common sense, good advice. To get the most out of them in the present moment by fully appreciating their intensity in full knowledge that we will soon have to let them go to embrace whatever comes next. Go home, make a nice sandwich for ourselves. We have this attitude, it's not going to last forever. It will be nice for a while. I'm not going to cling to it. That's just good common sense. But that's not really the end of what the Buddha is teaching. He's not really even teaching that, although it makes sense coming out of the Buddhist teachings that you'd have that understanding that, yeah, things are changing, but... I'll take what I get. You know, it's a nice day. I know it could be a bad, a worse day tomorrow, but I'll just appreciate what I have. I'm relatively healthy today. I'll appreciate that, knowing that it will change. 
And then he gives the other another example. He says, insight into change teaches us hope, because change is built into the nature of things. Nothing is inherently fixed, not even our own identity. No matter how bad the situation, anything is possible. We can do whatever we want to do, create whatever world we want to live in, and become whatever we want to be. So this, to some degree at least, is also useful, a useful thing to hold, like when we're, we are in a really bad job, you know, not to feel like that's it, I'm doomed, or a bad relationship, because relationships can change. I mean, either you can leave the relationship or you, the relationship itself can be transformed. Same with jobs. You can either transform your relationship to the job or work with the powers that be and have them change the job or leave the job. So there is this dynamic possibility with whatever situation feels fixed or we feel stuck in, it is possible for things to change. And then the third example um, Ajahn Tanisaro gives is this sense, we've all heard this in different ways, uh, he calls it a stoic equanimity, training ourselves not to get attached to the result of our actions and accepting without question the need to keep on producing fleeting pleasures as best we can. For the only alternative would be inaction and despair. Right? So, yeah, things are ephemeral, but that's all there is. So I'm just going to do my best to set in motion as many pleasant experiences as I can, even though I know that they're going to change. So Ajahn Tanisaro is saying, These, this is not the teaching that the Buddha uses impermanence actually as a skillful means to help us address a very relevant question that we all have. Whether you've actually heard yourself ask the question or not, we all have this question in our mind. You know, I mean, the, the simple version of the question is, what leads to lasting happiness? That's the simple version of the question. A more specific, technical version of the question is, this is what he writes, what, when I do it, will lead to my long-term well-being and happiness? What, when I do it, will lead to my long-term well-being and happiness? So, the reason we're interested in change is we're interested in a happiness that is independent of change. I mean, that's the. Rel- I mean, we're, aren't you interested in a long-term happiness? I mean, we settle for short-term happiness. I get it. I'm there many times today. You know, I mean, just I, I observe so many times today. I did some exercise, and I normally don't do any exercise. So nothing vigorous, but some of you maybe caught it about a week or so ago. There was an article in the New York Times, and it always went up in these articles about like. Seven-minute workout. Did you see that? I've done it several yeah. times. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> Today was my first time. It's hard. It is. It's very. I don't. I can't say I did it completely. You're supposed to do each of these. Well, you're supposed to do each of these workouts full, wholeheartedly for thirty seconds, then a ten-minute, ten-second break, thirty-second, ten-second off, and I don't know. There must be like twelve of them or something like that. Um, Anyway, see, where was he going with this? <laughs> oh, so I had a lot of energy today. 
uh, after doing that, I was like, God, this is better than green tea. <laughs> I used to be kind of really into working out, but not in the last 15 or 20 years. <laughs> anyway, so I did my seven-minute workout. I was feeling, like, really alive, really hot, basically. And I just noticed how it was like, just doing all these things. I do a little work on my talk, and I go to something else. I and, and I was just like moving around, and you know, just that. Uh, like, it will be so nice to get that done. It'll be, and just that pursuit of happiness. And there was always more to do. And so I was just observing that. I mean, I, I was feeling pretty good. It wasn't like terrible suffering or anything. But just the restless, uneasy quality. I mean, hating it wasn't the answer, so I didn't hate it. I was interested in it. And this is really what the Buddha would advise us. It's like, we're using impermanence as a teacher. It's a skillful means. This is the word he used a lot. In fact, all the teachings are skillful means. Even the idea of impermanence itself is relative. Impermanence is a relevant teaching for a human mind that has a, a strong tendency to imagine things are permanent. Then we need this medicine that things are changing, this instruction, really. Check it out. Are things really permanent, or are they changing? And it really helps us clarify this natural wish we have for lasting happiness. We want a happiness that's immune to change. I mean, that doesn't mean that we have to cease seeking things that are temporary. Go ahead. But we should understand that it's temporary. And it's frustrating to always have to get another experience. It's never done. I mean, think about it. I mean, it's just amazing, even today, how many things I did today to be happy, to feel good. But then let's add up the days. How much, how many things we did in the last week or in the last year or the last decade, or through our lifetime, or maybe many lives, lifetimes. How many things have we done to be happy? And like, where is that cumulative effect? Well, maybe we feel exhausted, or frustrated, or who knows. But we should look, we should check it out. This is what Ajahn Tanisaro says, But the Buddha was not the sort of person to accept things without question. His wisdom lay in realizing that the effort that goes into the production of happiness is worthwhile only if the processes of change can be skillfully managed to arrive at a happiness resistant to change. Otherwise, we're lifelong prisoners in a forced labor camp, compelled to keep on producing pleasurable experiences to take care of our hunger and yet finding them so empty of any real essence that they never that they can never leave us full. These realizations are implicit in the question, according to the Buddha, that lies at the beginning of insight, which I just read. What, when I do it, will lead to my long-term well-being and happiness? This heartfelt question, motivated by the desire behind all conscious actions, right? it's really the seed of compassion, love, to attain levels of pleasure worthy of the effort that goes into them. Right? We've had a lot of pleasure that probably isn't worthy of the effort that goes into it. 
It springs from the realization that life requires effort, and that if we aren't careful, whole lifetimes can be lived in vain. Anybody have examples? I mean, maybe not a whole lifetime, but a decade? Like, how many relationships have we put a lot of effort into? And then what have we actually gotten out of it? Or working. I mean, one of the things that breaks a lot of our hearts is when we see people trapped in jobs that we would never want to have, earning just enough to stay alive, basically, and to keep doing what they're doing, working a job that we would never want to have. Of course, this is going on, I mean, maybe even the majority of the people on this planet, I mean, I don't know, but it's not a small number of people. And uh, doesn't that break our heart to, to contemplate so many of us so much of the time are working really hard to be happy. The, the effort to be happy, to get what we want, that pleasure, is so much greater than the pleasure that's ever gotten. This question, together with the realizations and desires behind it, provides the context for the Buddhist perspective on change. If we examine it closely, we find the seeds for all of his insights into the production and consumption of change. I like how he uses this phrase. So instead of the, the production and consumption of experience, he's saying that experience is really change. Any object of experience, any experience we've had, what we created, you know, our actions create experience, and then we consume them. We got ourselves, we made the decision and got ourselves a common ground, so in a sense we've participated in the production of this experience right now that we're consuming. And in the way that we're consuming this experience, we're producing the next experience. So if you're consuming this experience in a way that's giving you indigestion, like you're frustrated by being here and hearing what I have to say, then that, you know, that's the production of your next experience that you're consuming. Now you're consuming the frustration. And then how you deal, how you relate to that frustration, how you consume that, is going to produce the next moment. So we're in this experience of production and consumption of experience or change. And this is a, in that chapter that Charlie's going to scan for us in Joko Beck's book, Nothing Special. She's a, one of the great early Western teachers. She's dead now. She died a few years ago. She was the uh, lead teacher at um, Zen Center in San Diego for many, many years. And she has this chapter called, I think, just Experience or Experiencing. And you can work with this in your set, and then just more generally through the day. Am I having an experience, or is there experiencing being not? And it really will reflect back to us whether we're in the world, literally trapped in the world of our ideas about things, or are we mindfully aware of the truth, which is the thing, everything is unfolding. Never really coming into being long enough to be a something. It's uh, unfolding. It's, And you can get little glimpses of this, but the mind initially won't like to see this because it's very unfamiliar to the conditioned mind. 
the conditioned mind has gotten strongly, deeply rather, dependent on fixed notions. And that's why, of course, there's so much thinking going on, because it's through the process of thinking that we maintain the illusion of permanence. I'm Mark. That's, how I, that's what I thought yesterday, I'm Mark. So it's got to be the same thing. But actually, it's not the same thing. This, whatever that, this experience is that's being known, that I'm referring to as me, is not what it was yesterday. But that activity of the mind going, yep, it's me, that's the same. So that concept of Mark or me or common ground or car, that has a static flavor to it, even though it's just a, the thinnest veil on the actual experience, which is not the same. It's completely different. It's literally a different reality, even though on the surface, with uh, superficial attention, it seems like it's the same. Mindfulness breaks through this superficiality. It's really the point of mindfulness. So we're using impermanence, the nature of change, the underlying nature of change, both to um, contemplate in a very real, direct way where, how it is that lasting happiness, where is it that lasting happiness can be found. Because we keep, you know, we're working hard at lasting happiness, but we don't find it. <coughs> and it. And the Buddha would say, well, you're not finding it because you're not framing the question correctly. The question's right, like, where is there lasting happiness? But we have to remember, in this context of change, where is there lasting happiness? We have to remember the changing nature, because it adds important information to our pursuit of lasting happiness. It's like, eliminate so many possibilities. Like, don't look there. You know, don't look at ice cream. Ice cream may be sweet and smooth and cool, but it doesn't last. And sleep may be really nice, but it doesn't last. And uh, moments of beautiful affection with another human being may be really sweet and wonderful, but it doesn't last. And the Buddha is not negating these things. But when we're, if we're truly interested in lasting happiness, we should understand the limitations of where we've been spending our time. Because otherwise, like uh, Ajahn Tanisara says, we just miss the point. You know, how many days, how many lifetimes have been wasted pursuing things like wealth or whatever, that doesn't lead to lasting happiness. So the Buddha and Ajahn Tanisaro mentions this in his article. You know, he talks about actions having four results. You can produce, you know, act in a way where you get a pleasant result. You can act in a way where you get an unpleasant result. You can act in a way where you get a mixed result. And then you can act in a way and this is what Harajan Tanisara describes it, the fourth and a fourth that leads beyond action to a level of happiness transcending the dimensions of space and time, sounds out, to, out there, thus eliminating the need to produce any further happiness. So, here's another way of saying it. So this fourth kind of action with a fourth kind of result is the mind realizing an independence 
from needing things to be other than they are. Or a mind realizing an independence no longer dependent on its conceptions of happiness and unhappiness. You get this in very deep states of concentration before the deep insight. But even in really deep states of concentration, some of you have touched these places in your sits, especially those who've been practicing for a while. And uh, the mind becomes very, the heart becomes very still. And in that stillness, in that peace, the mind is not concerned with pleasure or afraid of unpleasantness. It's really left that behind for a while. That's what peace is. A peaceful mind, by definition. When the mind is at peace, it has some distance from its obsessive concern with pleasant and unpleasant experience. That's the very definition of peace. So when that's very profound, when that distance is great, and so that that very deep conditioned tendency to be interested in pleasant experience and to be averse or not wanting unpleasant experience, it's like suppressed. It can't be found in the moment. And the mind experiences a tremendous healing because it realizes this possibility of freedom. Even though it's temporary, it's dependent on the mind being concentrated, being really still. And then when you have to go back to work or have conversations or be out in the world, you lose that stillness. But there's a there will be a little increase in faith and uh, maybe even a residue of that peace because it's hard to forget that kind of peace when because it's different than the kind of peace we get when we were in that nice warm bath and the day the busy day is done and we don't have anything we have to do for eight hours or ten hours and there's a little bit of relaxation but in that relaxation and that's real I'm not taking it away I mean we like that and it, it is healing to a degree that there's part of us that understands even if it's not conscious that it's temporary that I will have to get up that eventually the bath water is going to get cold or the skin will shrivel or whatever you know and we'll have to get out and then that's that like cold air <laughs> already it's like is it worth it you know so let me read just a little bit more from this article because the activities of producing and consuming require space and time a happiness transcending space and time by its very nature is neither produced nor consumed so that's a should be a little like hmm I'm not sure I understand that because the activities of producing and consuming require space and time, a happiness transcending space and time by its very nature is neither produced nor consumed. Well, this gives us some important description. Like what we're looking for is not something the mind is pro- could produce or consume. Like I can generate really exalted ideas in my mind. Like the idea of all of us loving each other and being kind to each other and taking turns. You know, just creating a really utopian vision of common ground and how we are together. And that would create some pleasant feeling, which I would consume. You know, that vision, you know, I would consume it. But it involves space and time. It involves a conception. 
And that conception, me thinking that, imagining that, is subject to change. So it's inherently stressful. Because i got to keep doing it in order to get... And each time I do it, I get a little less. So i got to change it a little. And all of that is frustrating and stressful. So whatever we're looking for, it has to be, it has to be something other than what we produce and consume. And that's, that's good. That, that, that itself is sort of interesting. Okay, maybe that's why there's such an emphasis in meditation practice of not striving. Because that would be producing and consuming something, like trying to get to some experience. And then he goes on. Thus, when the Buddha reached that happiness and stepped outside of the modes of producing and consuming, he was able to turn back and see exactly how pervasive a role these activities play in ordinary experience and how imprisoning they normally are. Right? So let's just say there was this person or one of the people here in this room that have had some deeper insights. So not just the mind being still in a concentrated way, but rather the mind really seeing the changing nature, let's say, and because the mind sees the changing nature of whatever experience experiencing that is being known, sees the changing nature, and the heart becomes dispassionate. It's like things are processed, they're changing. Why, why resist? Why try to produce and consume? Because the production and consumption is always coming from a self, right? A self-centered point of view. Nature is trying to produce something or consume something. Like even a tree, you know, things that maybe aren't sentient in the way that we are. It's not trying to get big. They're just these natural and personal forces that are, you know, the river, Mississippi River, it's not trying to get to the Gulf of Mexico. So it doesn't have this production idea of like, just, well, at least get me to Hastings. <laughs> and then we'll see. <laughs> and, but, but we have the sense that i got to get myself through Monday, you know, and then Tuesday. And then, you know, I'm right in the middle of my 50s, getting myself through my 50s on to the 60s. And then there's this thing called retirement. I'm not sure where that is, but I have a sense it's somewhere out there, you know. So we have all these production goals and consumption desires. And so the practice is beyond that, and the Buddha stepped beyond that. And when he stepped beyond that, a very powerful insight arises. This is really what we mean by the fourth noble truth when we see the path. It's like we see how stressful... It was being a producer and consumer. That that identity, that mental construction of being somebody who has to produce something in order to consume something is itself stressful. So John Tanisaro again, he says, he was able to turn back and see exactly how pervasive a role these activities play in ordinary experience and how imprisoning they normally are. He saw that our experience of the present is an activity. He saw that our experience of the present is an activity. Right? So we can observe this right now. Something fabricated or produced. 
moment to moment from the raw material provided by past actions. So this production right now that we're all involved in, how are we producing the meaning we have about what's going on? Well, of course, it's being informed from all of our past conditioning. The meaning that we're producing right now, hearing this talk, being in the room with each other, we're producing it out of the stuff of the past. All the way our mind has been conditioned from our past experiences. So we're producing it out of the past. We even fabricate our identity, right? Because that's one of the things that we've done this before, that had this sense of self. So the past is informing us now, informing this process now, and we're doing that again. We're constructing a sense of a somebody who is here, having this experience. We even fabricate our identity, our sense of who we are. At the same time, we try to consume any pleasure that can be found in what we've produced. Right? So whatever, like if you feel good about being here, then, you, then there's a somebody that wants to benefit from that pleasant feeling that you've just created, like, it's really good to be at Common Ground. I'm so glad that Buddhist studies has started again. Or the opposite. I always think, why did I sign up for this? <laughs> so whatever your experience now, you know, then there's this inevitable consumption, and he goes on to say that sometimes we can't help but getting the unpleasant with the pleasant. You know, we can't tease out the two. Although in our desire to consume pleasure, we often gobble down pain. With every moment, production and consumption are intertwined. We consume experiences as we produce them, and we produce them as we consume. The way we consume our pleasure or pains can produce further pleasures or pains, now and into the future, depending on how skillful we are. So we might not be able to stop ourselves from producing, but we could begin to stop ourselves from consuming. So whatever we've produced, some feeling about being here, doesn't mean we have to take that personally, personally try to avoid it if it's unpleasant or own it if it's pleasant. We could just let it be a production. Oh, the mind's thinking that. The mind's feeling that. So the real breakthrough revolves around this contemplation of impermanence. This is something the Buddha mentioned. I mean, when you read the discourses of the Buddha, you just can't imagine how many times arising and passing away, or some version of that statement, arising and passing away, is used to define or point to the insights that the women and men and nuns and monks had. It was seeing the arising and passing away, seeing the changing, impermanent, ephemeral, inconstant, insubstantial, not dependable nature of experience. Here's one of the suttas. Just as a farmer working after the rains with a great plow bursts asunder the spreading roots as he plows, just as a reed cutter, when cutting reeds, seizes them by the stem, shakes them around, rips them out, and casts them aside. Just after the rains, when the sky clears, 
of the retreating rain clouds, the sun rises up into the sky, driving away all darkness from the heavens and illuminates, warms, and shines forth. So also the perception of impermanence, when developed and practiced, shatters all lust for sense realm, for the sense realm, shatters all lust for the form realm, shatters all lust for any existence or any becoming, shatters all ignorance all and uproots all selfish conceits. And the neat thing about this emphasis on impermanence, you know, it's not that the Buddha is being optimistic or pessimistic, it's neither of those things. He's trying to use skillful means that help us to be realistic you know, connect with things as they actually are. We tend to think of impermanence as a problem. So this week, we can really work with it as a teacher. See... What happens when we start noticing the arising and passings? And you can just create little gimmicks at the end of a meeting. Just note in your mind, the meeting began, and now it's ceasing. Monday began, and now it's near its end. The afternoon arose, and now it has ceased. There is no more Monday afternoon. The meal began. And now it's over. And especially noticing the cessation. And then when you have time to practice formally, then as certain experiences catch the attention, so you're present, then because of the theme of the class, really see, rally the interest to see, can I notice when this thought is no longer present? When the breath is no longer present? when the sound is no longer present, when the pain is no longer present, or no longer the same. When we're superficial, it just feels like that pain in the knee is constant. It's just throbbing. But what's really constant, I mean, it's not really constant, but what appears to be constant is the arising and passing of the thought, this pain is bad. And because that thought repeats... And doesn't it's static in the sense that it's it is the same thought that's coming and going. It seems like the pain is solid and permanent. But when we when we actually observe the pain with mindfulness, we see it's quite dynamic. It still may be intense, it still may be unpleasant, but it's not a thing. It's an unfolding process, pain is. This is from Tikkan Han. This will be in the email of this little passage. Nothing remains the same for two consecutive moments. And then he quotes a, I don't know how to pronounce this Greek guy, Heraclitus said, We can never bathe twice in the same river. Confucius, while looking at a stream, said, It's always flowing day and night. The Buddha implored us not to just talk about impermanence, but to use it as an instrument to help us penetrate deeply into reality and obtain liberating insight. We may be tempted to say that because things are impermanent, there is suffering. But the Buddha encouraged us to look again. Without impermanence, life is not possible. 
How can we transform our suffering if things are not impermanent? How can our daughter grow to be a beautiful young lady? How can the situation in the world improve? We need impermanence for social justice and for hope. If you suffer, it's not because things are impermanent. It's because you believe things are permanent. When a flower dies, you don't suffer much, because you understand that flowers are impermanent. But you cannot accept the impermanence of your beloved one, and you suffer deeply when she passes away. If you look deeply into impermanence, you will do your, you will do your best to make her happy right now. Aware of impermanence, you become positive, loving, and wise. Impermanence is good news. Without impermanence, nothing would be possible. With impermanence, every door is open for change. Impermanence is an instrument for liberation. So instead of it being a philosophical view, like I believe in impermanence, it's really a practice that leads to the end of clinging. So by observing impermanence, the heart ceases to cling. Observing impermanence is something, is an action, right? We're producing something, and then what do we get to consume? The experience of non-clinging. This is that fourth action the Buddha was talking about. There are actions that lead to happiness or pleasantness, actions that lead to unpleasantness, actions that are mixed, little pleasant, little unpleasant, and there are actions that lead to the end of clinging, where the heart, at least in a moment, steps outside of the world of good and bad, outside of the heart being dependent in any way. That's a different kind of experience. And the aftertaste of those insights is, I'm still a suffering being, you know, I still like this, don't like that, but there's a certain, uh, I don't know, mistrust or sense that it isn't what it seems to be my conditioned habits to seek out pleasant experiences and get away from unpleasant experience doesn't feel like a heavy trip. I don't quite believe it. I still will gravitate towards pleasant as long as I'm not harming myself or anybody. I still may gravitate to get away from unpleasant as long as I'm not harming anybody. But I'm not... My happiness is less and less dependent on whether there's a lot of pleasant or unpleasant experience arising. And that's the happiness, that's the long-term happiness we're actually interested in. A happiness or a peace that's independent of conditions. So I'll just say a couple more things and then open it up for discussion, um, just in terms of our homework. So practice seeing the, the beginnings and especially the endings of it. whatever you can catch just get interested in the beginning and endings and then uh, one of the articles I'll send you is a short article by Gil Fransdahl he talks about the impermanence of painful sensations and so you can look that at that because that's something that comes up a lot in our sets discomfort and then just to Bring that balanced attention, not the frustrated attention or the aversive attention, but a balanced attention to ordinary discomfort, not extraordinary discomfort, but just ordinary discomfort that you can be balanced with. And just observe its changing nature. We wanted to observe the changing nature of pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutral experiences. 
so that your, your mind is getting trained to notice that all the full range of experience is ephemeral. That's her homework for this week. Next week we'll have small groups. So we have about 15 minutes tonight. Uh, we'll do a little chant at the end at this piece, so we'll maybe end a little soon, and I'll say a few things about this chant. But any questions about what I've said thus far, or um, specifically you might address the question, what is the effect of understanding that our experiences are impermanent and constant, not dependable? So in your own experience, like your experience of being angry and seeing the impermanence of that, or your experience of, of whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so I was noticing tonight the guy that said that something I've noticed before when trying to see impermanence, that um, in actual sitting practice, formal practice, I tend to, you know, sort of try and keep some, like the body in my mind, and then, you know, the breath is maybe coming and going within that sort of frame. Um, and I don't, you know, I, and within that, I'm never sure, like, and then my attention kind of moves around within that, you know, like, it's not, I'm not, like, holding on, you know, mm -hmm. focusing on very, one very specific thing. Is your attention moving around, or is the experience moving around? Well, that is what I can't tell the difference of, yeah. is that I can't, I can't notice if it's just that my attention is what's changing, or if the actual experience is changing. Yeah. Like that is unclear. That was my question. Yeah, well, that's a very good question, and, and you don't really need an answer, because the question itself will kind of make you interested to see clearly. And what makes it seem like the um, attention is moving around is because of the tendency of the mind to grasp, to get identified with the objects. So it, it creates the experience of friction, you know, friction's there, friction's there. And so it feels like there's something happening, you know, that the mind is tight. And that tightness, we assume, is the activity of mind, of me doing things. But this is a nice thought experiment. This is Ajahn Armal says it this way. That, uh, you know, when you're driving, like a passenger, not driving yourself, but you're in a car as a passenger, and you have the sense of, you know, driving from here to there. But you can, in a sense, relax your gaze and have the sense that the visual objects are coming toward you, instead of you going towards them. It's all coming towards you. And that's a suggestion for, like, just generally, but specifically meditation practice, that awareness is the space this unchanging space. And then in this vast, boundaryless space, empty space, phenomena are coming and going. Sensations of the knee and thoughts and reactions. and All of that is moving, but the awareness isn't moving. Just the everything, uh, you know, the, all the objects of experience are what are, what are moving. So then it seems like there's, sorry to keep pursuing mm -hmm. this for a while. So it seems like then there's two kinds of awareness or something, because there's maybe like a, a wider awareness that's not moving, mm -hmm. but within that there's like a tension that is moving. And yeah, but it, but it might be just what you said, it might be tension. Uh, tension. Yeah. yeah, I know, but it might be tension. 
that that's actually what's moving. That's a physical and maybe mental too. But the, yeah, the mind does do these things. <laughs> but but is that the awareness that does that, or is it some thought that's moving? Like I really want to focus in on that. Yes. I really want to see that. What's that? Oh, I don't like that. And it doesn't mean that it's fully articulated like that, and that you would actually notice those words moving in the mind. But that's actually, when you look, that's what it's doing. And, and you can just immediately catch it, because those things can be known. So that's how you know that it's not awareness. Because awareness can't be known. Because that is not awareness. So if it's being known, if that movement of attention is being known, then it's something else. It's a thought, it's a reaction, it's something being known. Other experiences with change? Yeah. Uh, I, just, oh, yeah. I was really aware this weekend, uh, Friday night electricity went out. Um, and I, just the experience of being forced into a retreat in the sense of, go, you know, what am I going to do? Oh, okay, I guess I'm just here. And well, when's it going to come back out? I don't know. And it's in the past, it would always be, i got to get on the phone right away. Let them know that there's lights out. Um, I, you know, I can't sleep at night because I have to wear this hat and I can't have electricity. What am I going to do? And it was just this, I was aware afterwards that the whole experience was about 24, 30 hours before the lights went on. I was actually ex- expecting that until maybe Wednesday in my mind. But I was like, okay. This is the way it is right now, and but I didn't wasn't aware of it until it actually ended that I wasn't reacting during the time that it was happening. It was like this is just how it is, and when it changes, it'll change. But it was it was the weirdest experience for me because normally I get really anxious about stuff like that. I was just like I don't know if it's because of my practice, what I've been doing. That afterwards I became aware that oh I didn't react the same way that I normally do. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Other thoughts? Sharon, and then over here. I was just, this is piggybacking on what you were saying. That, uh, I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying there. So awareness and attention are two different things, right? Uh, well, it's a lot of times they're used similarly, but in, in, in light of what Jana was saying, I was saying that if you can notice the kind of attention you're bringing to an object, then that's not awareness. Right. That's because it's, it's a... It's, I don't need to be doing. Yeah. It's, it's the way the mind is relating. So there's... It's like a lot of times when we're... When experiencing is happening, the mind is relating to the experiencing, and that's part of the experiencing. And all of that can be known. By what? Or we usually say by awareness. Or the Buddha. The one who knows, knows, you know, that I'm, in a, I'm having a fit or I'm, I'm pretty peaceful. Mm-hmm. Oh, Casey, and then, oh, actually, I think you were going to be next. Say your name. I'm Christine. Christine. Um, I guess I've just been reflecting on this concept as Maybe a little bit louder, Christine. Um, there's this paradox in culture, our culture in general, where it seems like everything is always changing all the time. 
but there's also this expectation that everything should be permanent. Like, I don't know if other people experience that, but recently in my life, just personally, I have so many things changing all the time, um, just job-wise, career-wise, and it's almost, I have to make this, like, decision for myself, like, is this okay, or should I accept that this is kind of offensive because I can't decide on a career or something to people are like, I thought you were doing this, so I thought you were doing this, or I just changed it. And so, um, yeah, I was just reflecting on that, how things actually are so impermanent, but we're just so good at not seeing that, or like, um, saying that things should be permanent. I don't know. That's, that's just what I was thinking about. Yeah. And just one piece I, I meant to say that I didn't, that I think it's important is this world of producing and consuming, we can be participating in that world in ways that are very unproductive and frustrating, in ways that are relatively productive and pleasant. And the Buddha, you know, we're going to be making effort. You know, being alive, we're going to be making effort. So these are the four choices. And this one, it's subtle to make the effort that leads to freedom. You know, that, that's going to take some time for most of us. But we can get pretty good at making effort, producing effort that leads us to consume something pleasant. And the Buddha names what that is. He says, generosity, leading an ethical life, and developing samadhi. These are efforts. You produce these things, you produce generous acts, acts or kind acts, or acts that lead to a real calm, balanced states of mind, and you will produce pleasant experiences that you can consume. They're still temporary, but they're relatively stable, and they're pleasant. So we, we do want to, we can't, because things are real and permanent, we have to be on the lookout for a tendency like, I just want out, you know, because that's different than dispassion. Dispassion doesn't mean you have to get out of it. Dispassion means you just understand what it is, but you're not afraid of it. You're not afraid of being in the ephemeral world. And that's a shadow to some of these teachings if they're not clearly understood. People get a little nihilistic as they reflect on impermanence. And so remember, dispassion isn't being averse to the change, changing nature or the ephemeral or the non, not dependable nature of our lives. Casey, did you have a thought? Oh, it just keeps changing. <laughs> Good. Time for one more. Rebecca. Um, over the storms Friday morning, we lost two hundred-year-old um, trees oh. in our backwoods, um, and it changed my whole, my whole tree line, my whole the reason why I bought my house. <laughs> so, um, just, it's been interesting watching, and it's pretty cool that I'm doing programs after that. But, um, you know, my initial pain or whatever was, that's good for sale sign. I mean, it was that intense, you know. And then, when I was able to step away from that, then Friday, you know, in the nature, when I was able to look at the animals and connect with them and get out of my selfish view of I don't like to change the tree right now and look at what was happening with them something shifted from clinging 
to something that felt, well, I would say I grieved. You know, I cried a lot, but it was a different, it wasn't that selfish, I don't want this anymore. It turned into a freer, this is really sad. There's The, the trees were uprooted. They, it wasn't their time. You know, they weren't dead trees. They were living trees, and all these animals are on this place. And, and then get into the act of taking care of what he didn't do, take care of the physical act of moving tree out of the yard, things like this. I don't know, something shifted. And when you talked about the clinging tonight, that, that's exactly what it was, away from the clinging of my personal preference to, well, this is nature, this is what happens, and what is my job, what is my part in this to help the animals, to help you know, the rest of the trees that are still alive to clear away this debris. Yeah. You know, I don't know quite how to explain it, but there was this step away from this personal selfishness into compassion for the nature that was happening with the whole backyard system, the whole wildlife system. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if you have any better words to explain that, but it, there was a definite shift and yeah. it felt free. It felt free compared to how it felt in the beginning. It was very oppressive feeling. Yeah. Like, I wanted a for sale sign. <laughs> you know? And these, we have these experiences all the time. That's the important point I think you're making, Rebecca, is that we see the, the choice between suffering and non-suffering all the time if we look. And then the, the thing we're not doing as often is we're not distilling the wisdom that's available if we contemplate what's happening to us. Like, I just a teeny little glimpse of this is, I just noticed, I, I think I was driving and I heard on the radio that 400 trees in Minneapolis got blown over. And I just noticed immediately after hearing that information, a thought arose in my mind, uh, why even bother? You know, that was just this, this primitive conditioned response that for me, like, why bother to plant trees? They're just going to, and this is like, uh, this is that aversion to change, like kind of seeing change and then seeing the aversion to it. And then I saw that, you know, I, and I saw that that was just a thought. You know, I didn't cling to it. But just to see our relationship to impermanence is what we want. There's so many little lessons. That's a bigger one. But we have this every day. There are so many different lessons we can have with impermanence. Even something like if you watch a TV show tonight after you go home, and when it ends, just notice what your relationship is to the ending of the TV show. So let's take a look uh, for the last minute, which we'll is do this chant. This is a famous, well-known chant in Buddhist culture. Uh, there's a famous story, of course, at the time of the Buddha when he died. And uh, it was a big deal, at least as the legend goes. And big enough that the supreme deity of all the universes which is also a conditioned being like we are in the Buddhist cosmology, uh, was so moved that he spoke some truth. And uh, this truth is one of those statements I said gets repeated a lot. And so it's become the chant that's done often at funerals in Buddhist cultures. And so we chant it usually three times. And the translation, which is, you can see right now, impermanent are all uh, component things. They arise and cease. That is their nature. They come into being and pass away. Release from them is bliss supreme. Another way that last line gets translated is something like, understanding this deeply is the greatest happiness, which is peace. 
But let's chant the Pali three times. Now, a lot of you don't know it, but you'll hear me and a few others, and you'll learn it, and we'll do it each week. Nicha Vata Sankara Upadawa Yadamino Upachituva Nirushanti Te San Upasamo Sukho Nicha Vata Sankara Upadawa Yadamino Upachituva Nirushanti Te sangu pasamo suko anicca vata sankara upadawa yadamino upachitua niruchanti te sangu pasamo suko in the english impermanent are all component things they arise and cease that is their nature. They come into being and pass away. Release from them is bliss supreme. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.